In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this verse sums up everything that happened in these two chapters when Jesus was arrested, tried, crucified. It says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Just so you know, Jesus said, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down in my own accord, and I'll take it up again. Jesus went to the cross on purpose. He was born to take our place on that cross. It wasn't a political uh, scheme gone wrong that he was supposed to be king, but then he got messed up, and, and so we can just worship him as a really good teacher. No, no, no. He went to the cross on purpose. Then it says, by the predetermined plan for knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What a great verse. That all those that were complicit in Jesus' death are guilty of their sin, and yet God used them for his glory. Romans 8.28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them who loved him. Father, we pray that as we look at the scripture today, that you give us understanding, apply it to our hearts. Lord, as your children, that we might be filled with courage to go forth and share the message of the cross. And Lord, if there are any here today that do not know you as their own personal Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation, Lord. They would flee the wrath to come and flee to the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered in with his disciples. Now remember, they had kept, Jesus had kept a secret where he was going to have the Last Supper. So Judas wouldn't know. And as you read all the, the different accounts and you put these things together, you see how Jesus is being that example of being wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. So he knows what Judas is going to do. It's been prophesied. He knows he's a thief. He knows that he's going to betray him. So Judas doesn't know where they're going to have the Last Supper. He could bring the soldiers right there, but Jesus has work to do. And so when it's time, they have their discussions, Jesus teaching, and uh, he tells Judas what you're going to do, do quickly, and Judas leaves. The Bible says about that time that Satan entered into him. Don't feel sorry for Judas. Like somehow a lot of people like to say, well, really, he was just doing what Jesus wanted him to do. No, he was a wicked man who opened himself up for Satan. And Satan entered in personally into Judas for him to carry out this heinous betrayal. So he goes off to find the soldiers thinking, you know, I'll just bring them back here. Now I know where we're at. Jesus finishes teaching in his perfect timing. And he says, now it's time to go. And they go to a place they, were, they went to a lot. Uh, when they would come to Jerusalem, there always wasn't some place for them to stay. And those that have been over there to the Holy Land, um, you went down there and you see there's a cave there. Often in these little farmettes they would have outside of town, wealthy people had enough money to have a house and they'd have a little garden out there. They could uh, raise, uh, in this case, olives. And... Uh, Many times what they would do, just like the place Jesus was born, they would quarry out the side of the hill, the stone, use the stone, and they'd have a cave left there. Well, I'm sure that the disciples are used to going down there and camping out. So when Jesus leads them down across the Kidron Valley, it's very steep, steeper in those days than it is today. 
And there's a water system in the temple to continually carry out the blood of the lambs that spilled there. John MacArthur points out when they step across that, that brook there, <coughs> that it's already red with the blood of the sacrificial lambs. And Jesus reminded once again his purpose and all the things that are going to take place. They go into the garden, and three times he tells them, watch and pray. He's already told Peter, Peter, you, you say you're going to defend me. <coughs> Excuse me. Pray for me. This used to happen every year. Professional uh, uh, weakness, I guess, goes right to the voice. But he told him, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But Peter, I'm going to pray for you. Peter had an opportunity. John and James and the disciples had an opportunity to watch and pray with the Messiah at the deepest hour of his need. They were confused. They were downhearted. And so they just went to sleep. They just went to sleep. Jesus came by and woke them and said, could you not even wait with me one hour? He leaves. They go back to sleep again comes back the third time and he says they're coming now in the meantime judas we 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 gather from what we see in the gospels judas had probably shown up at what we think was john mark's house his mother's house he was a young man john mark's the one that started out in the journey with paul and barnabas and then hit a wall and and left and later after he's restored paul said i need john mark to come and so he's a very young man probably a teenager and uh, the soldiers come back to now where Judas knows they were supposed to have this last supper together, their Passover meal, and everybody's gone. John Mark probably hears the ruckus going and comes down and goes, oh, well, I wonder where they're going. Well, Judas knew where they often went, so he heads to the next place. So by the time Jesus has walked down the hill, he's taught them all the things he's taught them and spent that time in the garden as the burden of the sin and the guilt of all time is laid upon him. And he weeps before the Father. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Comes back the third time. He says, arise, it's time to go. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of sinners. But I want you to know something. What you're going to see as you take time to dig into this is that Jesus is in charge of everything. He's in control. He ne he's never out of control. Which means, as a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, you can walk in the power of the Spirit no matter what the trial is. You don't have to lose control. Because Jesus has been there. And the Bible says no matter what temptation, no matter trial takes you, first of all, it's common. Somebody's been there before you, but God is able to make a way through the trial so that you will be able to stand. And Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tested just like we are. Because of that, because he was victorious in every temptation, every trial that he faced, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. And now is the next step. So he goes and he meets this entourage. Now it says there in John... Judas, having received the Roman cohort, that's 600 men. 
Now, uh, recently I read uh, Bill O'Reilly's book about the killing of Jesus. And, you know, Bill O'Reilly's not a born-again man. I was surprised he got a lot of things right, but this part he got wrong. Well, it was just a few Jews that showed up. It's not what the Bible says, is it? I'm always amazed at these different films that supposedly Christians put out that they don't go to the text and read the original uh, uh, words, if you were, to find out what happened. A Roman cohort of 600 men plus the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they come with lanterns and torches and weapons to arrest and bind the creator of the universe. The one who said, let there be light, and there was an explosion of light. The one who called all these things into existence, according to Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God. He spoke the words, and the worlds came into being. And Jesus, and we went over this a little bit last week, knowing all things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, he met them. He didn't run. He met them. He said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And remember, I told you that the disciples had missed their opportunity to be on the front with Jesus at every point and be victorious. They missed it because they didn't spend time preparing in prayer. They were confused even though Jesus had told them exactly what was going to happen. They were confused. So Jesus says his name, and everybody, including Judas, was pushed back and hit the ground by just them saying his name, the power of his name. So they know. Jesus is in charge here. They stand back up and they dust themselves off. And he said, who are here to rest? And just like good soldiers, they say his name once again. And he says, then that's your orders. Let these go so that it might be fulfilled. Of all the Father gave him, he did not lose one. Showing again what we talked about last week. God is active in our preservation. God is active. He doesn't give you a trial that's going to push you out of his will or push you out of his salvation. He actively is working in your life in your eternal salvation. He never leaves you nor forsake you. He's always there. He knows every single trial. And he is actively keeping you in his grace. Just like he did his disciples. Now Peter, because he wasn't praying, he wasn't prepared... Here's his opportunity. Here's his opportunity. So he takes his, he probably thinks, this, this is it. The rest of the guys don't get it, but this is where we take over. This is where he becomes king because all he's got to do is same as say his name again. It'll be a supernatural victory. I want a piece of that. So he takes a sword out and takes a swing at Malchus, servant of the high priest. Now he wasn't aiming for his ear. Peter wanted his head. And I'm sure, again, he's thinking, if I get in trouble, Lord, just say your name again. We've got this. And he totally missed what was going on because they just could not get rid of the fact Jesus was going to be king and they were going to help him bring it in. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter again. And he says, Peter, put your sword back. The cup the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is the purpose that Jesus came to the earth. He came to die. If you get nothing else this morning, understand something. 
Jesus Christ lived a perfect sinless life. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again the third day. I had Doug read Psalm 22 today because it's the prophecy of crucifixion before crucifixion was invented. Jesus knew exactly how he was going to die. He wasn't going to die by stoning. He had to die by shedding his blood. And he dies not only at the hand of the Jews, but of the Gentiles who rule the world, that he might be the savior of the whole world. And I think one of the greatest ironies, after he said his name and they're knocked to the ground, they arrest him and bind his hands. They bind his hands. Now they take him back and they first go to the father-in-law, Annas. You need to understand something about these high priests. They were Sadducees. They didn't believe in the supernatural. But mostly they were just thugs. They were the mafia. It was all about the money. They ruled Israel by fear and greed. And that's why it was so discouraging to go and worship in those days. And if they didn't like what you were doing, they had you rubbed out. These were not holy men. They were not just misguided. They were wicked, godless men in a place of religion. And God used them, even their wickedness, to his own glory. Remember, Caiaphas, the high priest, had said in their plot to murder Jesus that it's necessary that one die for all the people. And it said he didn't. He didn't say that on purpose, but God spoke through him. A wicked man, in spite of who he was, in spite of his own murderous desires, God used him and spoke through him to fulfill Scripture. So first they take him to Annas, so Jesus knows who's really in charge around here. Now, the high priest was supposed to be something that, that, that place was supposed to be something that was passed down by right, almost like a king, through the lineage of Aaron, to the next person in line. But it had become a political deal that the uh, Romans paid for because it was such a powerful position and it was so much money that they decided instead of, uh, Annas was probably getting uh, out of line or something, they removed him and put his son-in-law in there. And his son-in-law was probably not even in the line. But they bring him to Annas first just so Jesus knows. You try to cause trouble around here. But we got you. And Jewish trials are not supposed to take place at midnight. And if it's a capital crime, it's supposed to be done over a period of 72 hours. So there's time for somebody to come from the distances of Israel and be there in case there's a witness that this person isn't guilty before they die. <coughs> but they don't do that. They want to get this done in the dead of night. They didn't want this trial to happen during Passover week. Because they wanted to get it done. And now with all the people that have come from all over Galilee. And he's so famous and he's so well loved. They'll cause a riot and they won't get it done. But Jesus has pushed them to the place they have to do it now. So they decide to do it at night. And that's why they take Judas. It wasn't that they, they didn't know who Jesus was. But in the dark of night. They need to know where Jesus is so they can get this done secretly. So then they take him to Caiaphas' house. And they bring false witnesses in. And they can't even get the false witnesses to, to agree in their stories. And finally, Caiaphas asks him, 
Are you the son of God? And he said, I am. Kai says, we don't need any more witnesses. He tears his, he tears his uh, vestments, showing great, great grief over this blasphemy. And so he finds him guilty of being who he said he was, the son of God. Now they can't, they can't kill him. They'll, have, they'll be in big trouble. They have no power for capital punishment. So they send him to Pilate. And Pilate's wife has had a dream where she's had a lot of trouble and she's very afraid. She says, listen, husband, don't have anything to do. Don't you do anything bad to this guy. You're going to be in trouble. So Pilate's already got that ruler rolling around in his brain. They bring him to Pilate. And Pilate realizes that Herod's in town too. This, he's from Galilee, Herod's region. So he sends him to Herod. He has a trial with Herod. Herod can't find anything wrong. So he sends him back. And he has this discussion with Pilate. In the meantime, Peter has been brought in. John is the one disciple that stays close the whole night. The rest of them forsook him and fled, but he stays close. He has, <coughs> it says there in verse, um, sixteen. Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who is known to the high priest John. Ask permission, they bring Peter in, and as he's passing by, the little servant girl says, hey, weren't you one of them? Later, a servant, a, a relative of the one who Peter cut his ear off, and, and Jesus healed him, says, hey, I saw you there. And Peter denies, with the Lord right there, he denies Jesus Christ. And they have the trial. Verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. It was early, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium. They, they want to murder him. They're doing everything illegal, but, you know, appearances are everything. And it's not a lie if you believe it. That's kind of what we deal with our politicians today, isn't it? It doesn't matter what they say, how they lie. As long as the people believe it, we're good. And so, in an effort to be holy, they can't go into... Pilate's house. Now, again, those who have been there, over to Israel with Dr. Bookman, you see what has gone on and, and the place. And it's not, they don't take him over where we've always been told by uh, Bible expositor before to the Antonius, which is the place where the soldiers are, are quartered right next to the temple. But they take him to Pilate's house, which is really the the, the uh, big palace that Herod the Great had built for himself and Pilate uses it as a place of residence when he would show up there in Jerusalem and the reason it's unique because Doug takes us to this place that biblical archaeologists have shown this is a place where Jesus was shown and, and the neat thing is the Catholic Church has, has purchased a lot of those different places like Bethlehem and they have churches like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus was crucified and then buried and they just turn it into really really gaudy I don't know. It just, it just doesn't look like something that's historical. And as you've had thousands of years of the Muslims being in charge over there until the Six-Day War, they have made an effort to destroy any biblical site they know about. They, just, they took uh, the site of the tomb in Golgotha, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, and they just peeled that thing down to the ground so there's hardly anything left. 
but we know where the palace was and where it was offered. And you can go there now, and there's nothing there except for these old steps. And you can see where it used to be because for years it was like covered with, uh, I think it's like 30 or 40 feet of dirt went up the side of the wall. And they peeled that away. You can see the place where they probably t came around the outside so they wouldn't ra wake anybody up, cause any trouble, get this deed done in the dead of the night. And so he questions Jesus right there inside his palace. And they have this amazing discussion together. Pilate says, first of all, why don't you take him and kill him? He said, well, we don't have power to do that. And so he examines him. And verse 33 says, are you a king of the Jews? Jesus answered, verse 34, are you saying this on your own? Or do others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest, delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would have been fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says to him, what is truth? That is the culture we live in today. All the philosophies and human beings think that we are so smart. We have all this technology and we've come to the place that there is no right and wrong anymore. And people can say, well, what is truth? What is it? If it's true to you, if it's true to me, that's different. Man becomes a standard about what truth, what is right and wrong. And we're come to the place in our own culture in America, we have surpassed Scripture, we have surpassed the knowledge of God. And now we say, if you say something sin, because the Bible says it's sin, then you're a hater. You're a hater. No hate speech. The nanny state has decided what is right and what is wrong. No hate speech. I told you, it just amazed me. I don't know if it was after the first or second election that George Bush um, won that the liberals, uh, Hillary Clinton and Jesse Jackson and others were on a talk show and Mrs. Clinton said, the problem is that the, we've allowed the Republicans to take the moral high ground. Now listen, I don't think Republicans are any more moral than Democrats. You know, I really don't. I think God's in charge. He said the last time, perilous times are going to come. I think that's where we're at. I think, honestly, that for most politicians, it's about what's going to get them in office. I'm sorry. I'm not saying all, but for the most part, that's what it is. And they check to see which way the wind's blowing, and it really gets to be about the power and the money. And I praise God for every statesman that gets up and actually says what he believes in spite of if it's going to get him in or not. But we have very few of those anymore. And I was thinking to myself as I was watching this talk show, well, if you're for abortion and immorality and all that's going on in this world and that's your agenda, how can, how can you say you can even get a moral high ground? How naive I was. Just change what's righteous and unrighteous. Call evil good. So you can call good evil. That's where we live. What is truth? There's only one standard that we can get 
for what God says is truth, and that is his word. And the Bible says, the soul that sins shall die. It's appointed in a man once to die, and after this, judgment. No matter what, what philosopher says what, that's what's going to happen. One day, every person, righteous or unrighteous, will stand before God. Every unrighteous person, every wicked that denied there was a God, that denied there was a standard of right and wrong, is going to stand before God one day. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it will be too late. Then they will be cast into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, utter darkness. This is the second death. The second death. But there's a way of escape. And the way of escape is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues his conversation because when Pilate hears that he is the king and he came for the truth, he tries to set him free. He can't find anything wrong with him. And so the Jews have examined him. Pilate has examined him. They can't find anything wrong with him, which is all in God's purpose because the Lamb of God must be examined. And Jesus is examined. He's found to be faultless. And then he will take our place on the cross. So Judas, in chapter 19, he wants everybody to feel bad for him. So he takes Jesus and he has him scourged. Now this isn't just a belt. This isn't just a leather whip. When Romans scourged you, it could kill you. They would take and put sheep bones and a little piece, piece of metal or glass on these cat of nine tails. And they knew how to do it. And they would lay the, the whip on and then rip it out. And Josephus says that many times... All of the, the meat and the muscles would be peeled away from the back. And you could look inside to see the organs of this person. So Pilate says he finds no fault. And then he scourges him. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And the soldiers are buffeting him in the face. And they put a purple robe on him to mock him. And he brings him out. So the people would have some pity. And he says, now you have a tradition. And by this tradition, during Passover, we let a guilty person go free. And he said, he picked up one of the worst criminals known about. He was a seditionist, one who was guilty of murder and robbering. He was a no good thug also. He says, Barabbas is supposed to be crucified today. And Chuck Swindoll brings it out in his book on the biography of Jesus that think about what Barabbas thought. He hears the crowd out there. And he says, should I bring to you Barabbas or Jesus? Who should I free today? And they say, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then he hears them say, crucify, crucify. And he goes, I'm dead. I'm done. But they don't know the conversation. He doesn't know the conversation. That they're saying, no, crucify Jesus, free Barabbas. And a soldier comes down, yanks Barabbas out of his chains, takes him out the back alley and sets him free. And Judas thought, or Barabbas thought he was going to the cross, and all of a sudden he's sitting there alone. Jesus took his place on the cross. Took his place there. 
They take Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been up. He's been beat around. He's been scourged. He's had the weight of the sin of all the world placed on him so that in the garden, in the agony of looking forward to where he will be separated from the Father, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And angels have to come and minister to him. And they lay the cross beam for the cross on him because you're going to carry your own cross to the place of crucifixion. And they begin to march him through the streets so that if Jesus falls, he's tied to this cross beam and his face will smash into the pavement. And because of the loss of blood, for some reason, the Romans decide to grab Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd and make him carry Jesus' cross. What a privilege it was for Simon of Cyrene. Later, his two boys become great helps the Apostle Paul. Simon of Cyrene's wife, when nobody else will take in the Apostle Paul because they're afraid of him, she takes him to their home and Paul says, that's their mother, and she's mine too. They carry, the, carry him to the place. He carries that cross beam to the place of crucifixion. And Chuck Swindoll brings something else out that I'd never thought about before. Now, crucifixion was the cruelest form of punishment. And it was invented by the Phoenicians, we believe, but it was perfected by the Romans. They knew how to make it last longer or how to bring it to a conclusion faster. And usually if you died after a long period of time, it was by asphyxiation because you've already been beaten. So, you, you, you know, putting this, this rough cross against your back and you had to pull yourself up to breathe. When you were out of strength, you just died of strangulation because you couldn't breathe anymore. But the thing that he brought out that was so powerful to me is how they would lay the person down on the cross. They put... Took the cross beam that he was carrying away from them, put it down, fastened it to the, the upright part that would go into the ground. Then a soldier would lay across the victim's chest. And then two men would stretch out the hands. And I thought about my sin, how personal crucifixion was. That my sin was laid right there in the form of that Roman soldier. When they would take a nail and put it through the hollow part of the wrist so it would hold, it caused great, amazing nerve pain. And so somebody on the cross, after they're nailed there through their ankles and through their their wrist, besides the agony of just those instruments being there and all that was going on with the cross, a person had to be moving constantly to get away from the pain that was there. And they would cry out, and they always put it in a very public place, and they stripped the naked. So it was so personal. Everybody walking by says, don't mess with Rome. Or you're getting up on a cross. And it was very effective. Romans had what they called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That's where it came from. You don't mess with Rome, or we'll put you on a cross. And because the disciples missed their opportunity, most of them were gone. But John was there. And Jesus was raised up. And that cross went down to the hole. And we dug red this morning in 
Proverbs 22, that all my bones are out of joint. Not a bone was broken, but all of his bones were out of joint. And nakedness for all to see. Sometimes we're ashamed to claim Jesus. Jesus was not ashamed to go to the cross for you and for me. And these two thieves, which were Barabbas's compadres in crime, were probably surprised to see Jesus there because Barabbas was the one that was supposed to be there. Jesus took his place too. And it says here in John that Mary and her sister, Mary Magdalene, were there and John was there. And Jesus takes time from the cross to say, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And from that day, John took care of Mary. Not Jesus' brothers, John. Later, the scriptures say they must have moved away. <coughs> was it because the, the pain was too great or they couldn't stand the mocking of the crowd as Doug read the prophecy that bulls of Bashan have surrounded me even as agony? They couldn't leave him alone. They went in front of the cross and they jutted their, their jaw. They said, ah, he saved others. He can't save himself. No, he couldn't save himself. Because he was there for you and for me. But there came a time. Jesus hung there from 9 o'clock in the morning. Till 3 o'clock in the, in the afternoon. And at 12 noon. A darkness came over the land. And the soldiers knelt at the foot of the cross. And filled scripture. And they, they gambled for his clothes. Everything was fulfilled right down to that last detail. And then when the sacrifice of sin was complete, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And they gave him some of the cheap wine, the vinegar wine that the soldiers drank. He cleared his voice. With the last ounce of strength, he pulled himself up and he cried out, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is completed. The work of for your sin and my sin, for the sin of the whole world, was finished there on the cross. There's nothing left to do but to receive that, that sacrifice for your sin. Then the Bible says, he dismissed his spirit. In Luke, and no, in Mark, when the Roman soldier who was in charge of the crucifixion there saw the way that he died, said, surely this was the Son of God. Why? Because he didn't struggle. He didn't fight. Jesus had said, no man takes my life from me. I'm going to lay it down on my own accord and I'll take it up again. He bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit. But not everybody, not everybody missed their opportunity. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had been afraid to identify with Jesus because they were in the inner council. They were important. They were believers, but they were afraid. Now they come forward in boldness. And they ask for the body of Jesus. And Pilate is surprised that he died. He's already dead. And because the others would probably last, it could last a long time. The good priests want to make sure that nothing defiles 
Passover. And so they ask that they finish the job and they break the legs of the criminals. They break their femurs so they have no strength. And then the shock of being here, uh, they've already been abused tremendously. And they break their legs and they expire. They can't pull themselves up any longer. But they come to Jesus and John is there, and John did not miss his opportunity. He becomes a witness here and also in the epistle. And they see that Jesus is already dead. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. They will look on him whom they pierced. And so they take a sword because Romans have to make sure that if you're condemned to die, that you die all the way or they get put up on the cross for you. There's no paying the guard off to punish you a little bit and then you sneak your body off later and you, you're, you're not dead yet. As they take a spear and they run it under his ribs. And John said, I was there and I saw that what came out was water and blood. They pierced the sack around the heart. And the, and the blood had separated from the water. And John says that so you know that there's a testimony. Jesus died. Jesus died on that cross. It's a fact of history recorded by non-believers and believers alike. Jesus died on the cross. And because of their faith, Joseph and Nicodemus come and they ask for the body of Jesus. Verse 38. After these, Joseph and Mary Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus away, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. They were willing to make themselves unclean at this high time of Passover because of their faith. Because of their love for Jesus. Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to know who they are now. But because of the cross, they have boldness. They have courage. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they ate Jesus there. God prepared Joseph and the Bible prophesied he was with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He had a garden there with his own tomb. And laid Jesus right there, fulfilled everything all the way down to where he was buried. The Bible says, the capsule of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and on the third day, he rose again. And Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. <coughs> Lord, we're amazed at your suffering. And Lord, it's so personal. And yet, for personal salvation, we need to identify with that cross. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning that have never trusted you personally as their Savior, that today... They would lay themselves at the foot of that cross. And from the depths of their heart, confess their need as a sinner 
for you as their Savior. Lord, we've sung about it. We believe it is the testimony of our, of our lives as your children. That we don't glory in anything but the cross of Jesus Christ. It is our salvation. And Lord, as your children, Lord, it is our heart's desire that we take up our cross and follow you where you lead us. Use the word in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.